This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Kayleen Leonard from CoquetteCouture.com explained why she felt the need to open up a physical retail store. In this episode, you learn from an entrepreneur that set up his business so that it could quickly scale to 50 countries. In this episode, you'll learn how to plan out a massive project when you don't have the time, how they were able to secure 70 patents for their business, and what logistics you need to set up when you're entering a new geography or market. Today, I'm joined by Gaston Fredlevsky from Hickeys.com. That's H-I-C-K-I-E-S.com. Hickeys is the evolution of shoelaces, making your, sho- making your shoes look, fit, and feel better, and was started in 2011 and based out of Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Gaston. Thank you very much, Felix. Happy to be here. Excited to have you on. So tell us a little bit more about the, your story and, and these shoelaces. Yes, absolutely. So I was one of those kids that would never take his shoes. And, and that got me thinking and, and made me realize that there was a global opportunity on the shoelaces space. I started paying attention and I noticed that most of my friends would never tie their shoes and would leave their tips hanging. And then I started paying attention to moms and dads of small kids who usually have to tie and then tie their kids' shoes multiple times a day. And then I saw athletes having to interrupt their, their runs and their trainings because the laces come undone. And I saw my grandmother that she couldn't bend. Uh, and basically I realized that everyone has a negative relationship with shoelaces depending on their stage of their lives. And on top of that, I noticed that there's not a, there was not a shoelaces brand and it was a commodity. And the technology around shoelaces had evolved, uh, sorry, around shoes had evolved tremendously and we were still using strings. So that's how I came up with the idea of Hickey's, that it's a technology that replaces shoelaces in any shoe. It's a one-size-only product. It turns any shoe into a slip-on, and you can connect them in different ways, and once you have found the perfect fit, you will always have it. Mm-hmm. So you knew this was a pervasive problem because you saw it everywhere, like you're saying, all stages of life, everybody in different uh, backgrounds and ages all had this negative experience with shoelaces. So what was the first step towards creating a business, creating a product around it? Yeah, for many years, this was like my passion project. So uh, my background was as an investment banker, so completely removed from design. But during all those years, I kept working all the time. So the first step was the the biggest revolution about Hickey's is that it changed the concept of um, shoelaces, that instead of having one single device that goes across the whole shoe, it's multiple devices that connect each pair of eyelets independently. So that's the biggest revolution. So once I had that idea, I hired a very small design firm in Argentina. That's where I'm from. And the first step was to design the, the real product. Once that was done, which took me like a year, then I spent uh, almost a year writing the, the patent. Uh, I, was, I was very young and uh, patent in the U.S. was very, very expensive, so I had no money, but I had a lot of time. So I spent like a year drafting and writing the, the patent, which I filed online. 
And once that was done, I spent a lot of time researching materials. If, if you fast forward to today, we have uh, developed our own material to produce hickeys because they have to be very resistant, but very stretchy and comfortable. So those features usually fight each other off. So we ended up developing our own material. So there have been a, a lot of different stages of trial and error and a lot of patience um, to get to the point where we were ready to launch a company. Mm -hmm. So you were an investment banker at the time, and this was something you were doing on the side. Did you like have any issues like balancing that time? Because from what I know, investment banking or anybody in the finance financial industry, it's very time intensive. It takes a lot of time, energy out of you. How were you able to balance that out with you know trying to start a basically invent a new product on the side? Yeah, to be honest, it was by uh, taking baby steps, but constantly. Uh, I had this goal of having at least one uh, major progress every week. But that major progress could be like finding a vendor or talking with someone. But for me, the consistency was the key. And that was the sort the, 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 the force driving all of this was the passion and the vision that I had for the business. But for me, it was very important to keep making small progress every week. I would devote, I don't know, an hour during the weekend uh, or sometime on a lunch break. And that's how I kept going and layers and layers and layers of those efforts ended up with a, the right product. Mm-hmm. And you know this something that is this large, this you know venting, creating a new product, not even just creating a business, but creating a new product for that business. Uh, obviously, it's a large scope, right? There's a lot of steps involved, and I think when you do not have that much time, you kind of spread it out over so many you know years and try to find holes and opportunities to get the work done, like during your lunch break or on a weekends or after work, trying to find all these times to squeeze it in. There is that potential where you do lose steam. Like I think that's what you're alluding to, that you always wanted to make some progress. How are you able to, I guess, plan all it out? Like, how were you able to, do you ever take time to, to kind of zoom out and say, okay, this is what I want to do over the entire year. This is how I'm going to do it. Did you ever do it that way or were you more just see what comes as you go? Well, it was a mix of, of both things. For me, the, the, the big there were two drivers. One, that I thought that this was an idea that had to exist, whether I would do it or not. So then uh, a big fear was that was driving me was that someone would have come up with this before me. Mm-hmm. So, so that was part of the pressure, even though it took me many years. So the patent was a big part of that. Um, but at the end, on the other side, is like I, I do believe that you need to be in love with the idea, that kind of obsessiveness that you cannot remove from your mind. So I think that that's part also of, of the trick. If not, it's, it's very simple that the idea will fade away or the enthusiasm will fade. So I think that you need that, that passion that I can not ex- explain where it's coming from, plus also the fear. That makes sense. So the the um, with the, other than hickeys, did you have a background in, in business or entrepreneurship? Have you tried launching other products or other businesses in the past? Not me, but my wife, who's also my co-founder. By the time that we got married, she already had a successful hotel in Argentina, uh, which she started when she was 24. And it was the number one hotel on TripAdvisor for four years. So she, she brought to the table the startup vibe and experience. And I brought, you know, more the global business mindset from, from investment banking. So it was a we were very lucky and it was a very nice combination, but but the real world startup experience was brought to the table by my wife. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so once you had, once you were able to start designing the product, when you had a good idea for it, or when it was pretty flushed out, you then decide to go get a patent. Tell us about that process. Like, what was involved? Like, how long did it take? Yeah, so it took me a year, and basically, what this was before even becoming an investment banker. I, I was very young and jobless, but with a lot of time on my ma- on my hands. So. I, I found out that customer service at the United States Patent and Trademark Office is extremely good, <laughs> so I drove nice. them crazy. And, and basically, I read a ton of patents and, and even some legal books to learn how to do it. At that point, filing for a patent with a full law firm involved was like $20,000, and there was no way that I could afford that. So. I ended up doing it for $600, which was the, the, the fee that I had to pay to file the patent. So it was, yeah, it, it was a learning process, which at the end of the day was extremely helpful because w- when you look at Hickey's today, we have more than 70 patents worldwide. Uh, we have a full-time IP lawyer in our company. And I can talk with him and with any of our you know, uh, law firms around the world uh, on the same terms that they talk among themselves and I can discuss strategy with them. So all the hard work that I put in on the early years, now it's paying off. I can talk with material vendors as if I would be a plastic engineer and so on and so forth. So all that work really paid off now that we have a real business. Mm, so for, I guess, a, a, a product in general and then all these other patents that you came up with that you decided to file, how do you decide what needs to be patented and what maybe doesn't need to be patented? Yeah, well, it's, it's all, uh, the, the whole patent game is extremely expensive, but there are many, many ways to spread it in time. Uh, so there are different international stages and there are ways of diluting the investment. So you can start filing in the U.S., then a year later you can expand to Europe and to some other countries. And then through the PCT, which is the international agreement, you have a couple of additional years to file uh, in the local country. So you have a, a, in total like four years to do the whole investment, and you can see what's working and what's not. So then you can decide in what to invest and what not to invest. And then on top of that, Hikis has patents not only on our own product, but also around all the potential variations of it. So we have protected the whole space. We believe that we are the owners of this space. Mm-hmm. So these 70 patents are for, you know, obviously different technologies around the, the product that you have, but there are also you also need to have the same patent in multiple countries. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, correct. I see. So, do you have to? How do you decide which countries that you should, you know, go after? Let's say that there's a listener out there that wants to patent their technology, wants to patent their product, and maybe they've done the U.S. one if they're based in the U.S. Like, how do you know what countries to look at next? Yeah, it's a combination. The, the, the good thing is that you have in total like four years to do the full investment. So, on one side, you you see the market opportunity or potential. So, the size of the market is it's a big driver. Uh, the other one is if you are already making revenues from a specific country, then you definitely need to protect it. Um, and then also uh, countries where vendors or potential counterfeiters are based. So those are the three things that we consider. There are some markets where we are not present yet, but they are huge. So we, we protected them. There are some markets where we are active and we never thought that we were going to be active. So we ended up filing the patents there. 
And then, of course, the traditional infringing countries, those must be protected. Mm -hmm. And how do you, um, when you you are, I guess, beginning this patent process, um, how do you make sure, because you've gone through so many times, what do you have to make sure you have ready in order to make sure that this process is smooth? Because, I mean, you said you took six months for the first one, which is, you know, I don't don't think that long, I guess, for, especially for your first time around, but I'm sure you've learned things along the way that made the process smoother. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah, it's very important. It's very easy to search for prior art, as it's called in in the space. So basically, there's a lot of people that have a lot of great ideas that they patent it, and maybe you have never seen the products come to market. Uh, So do a a thorough search uh, of what you think that it's a new idea, because if it's not novel, you will not get the patent. So make sure that no one else has produced the same thing that you want to produce. And if there's something similar, you have to make sure that you are addressing the differences and that's what you're going to get the patent on. I would say that make sure that you have a novelty involved in your, your patent. Mm-hmm. And you said that there, you have four years to complete the entire process. Does that mean that if you have a patent in one country, you have up to four years to patent it in another? Like, What does it mean to have four years? Yeah, if you go through all the stages that the international patent process allows you, uh, it, it can take up to four years. So you first do investment in the U.S., which is part of this uh, international network called PCT. Then you file, you have up to a year to file the PCT, and then the whole PCT process takes like between two and three years. So at the end of that process, you have to select in which specific countries you're going to go. Um, and that's when you have to do the big, big, big investment. And, but at that time, you had four years to, to develop the market and see if there's something there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a patent is only useful, obviously, if you are going to be using it. So how do you, I guess, how do you, you don't want to go into exact details, but how do most people, or maybe if you want to share your experience, how have you used your patent? How has it helped your business? Yeah, uh, on, on our case, we are very strong in enforcing our patents. Each time that we see someone that it's trying to knock us off, we immediately address it, uh, and we do that at multiple layers. We, for example, we file and we have relationships with other marketplaces, for example, Amazon, eBay. So as soon as we see someone knocking us off, we get in contact with them so that their listings are removed and the user is banned immediately. Then we also send cease and desist to retailers, which also immediately react. And then later we also file against the infringer and we usually collect damages from them. Mm, okay, makes sense. So once you've had this uh, product pretty flushed out, you have the, the patent for it and everything, was that when you first went to market or were you already in the marketplace before you uh, got these patents? No, I was sure that it was a two-pronged strategy. On one side, it was getting the, the patents and the right to expand it internationally and then on top of that, uh, the idea was to move very, very fast into the core market. As soon as we launched, we were in the U.S. and our first international market in the first few months was to expand to Japan. Today, Hikis is selling in 50 countries. Um, but the first one was Japan, which was the exact opposite of, <laughs> of the world. So for us, it was very important also to be the first mover because if you have a lot of all the patents and all the, the rights, uh, then it can also be very expensive to enforce it. So I would rather be making money 
in a specific market rather than spending it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Makes sense. So how were you able to expand so quickly? What was the strategy once you've had again once you had the product ready to go already? Did you did you have, did you build up inventory first? Like how did you prepare for this this launch into so many different markets? Yeah, so we from the beginning we used all the available technologies to get the word out and, and we launched our company through a Kickstarter campaign in 2012. And this was the the early days of Kickstarter. So and, and that campaign was very successful and basically we got a lot of attention globally. So immediately we got a lot of distributors reaching out to us and especially we started seeing a lot of interest from Japan and we're trying to figure out why Japan was so engaged with hikis. And what we realized is that they have to sleep in and out of their shoes all the time mm-hmm. because of their cultural you know, requirements. So it, it was a no-brainer that hikis had to exist in, in Asia, especially in Japan. So that's how we engaged. But basically, we had a lot of positive feedback and uh, interesting companies reaching out to us from the get-go, from the visibility that we got in Kickstarter. Mm, okay, so these are reaching out to you, and I think this is a, a, a not exactly an issue, but it's a good problem to have when you do have all the success, either from PR or from a successful Kickstarter campaign. Is that a lot of vendors, a lot of retailers, a lot of people in general just want to start working with you? So, how did you, I guess, manage all of that? How do you, uh, uh, I guess, uh, analyze opportunities in front of you and make the right decisions without getting too overwhelmed? Yeah, so we, we had uh, good advisors that came from the footwear industry when we launched the company. So they helped us to understand which were the, the, the right leads, and also they made some great introductions. So we made sure that we were surrounded by people that could help us to build our supply chain, our marketing, and our distribution network. So that was key in our initial setup. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So, can you talk to us a little bit about those decisions? Then, like, how were you? Able, like, what were some things that you learned? Uh, some some ways to filter for, let's say, a good uh, retailer to sell to. Yeah, and I, um, I don't know if I have the perfect answer because I'm still learning. The, the The one thing that I've seen is that the geographic diversification has given us uh, a good understanding on on what's going on on brick and mortar and, and retail in particular. And for example. The U.S. brick and mortar uh, ecosystem, especially at the at the large retailers, is much much tougher than in the rest of the world. And usually, you have only one gatekeeper, which is a buyer that it's in front of thousands of doors. And those guys usually don't have a lot of incentives to take risks, right? They they're just monitoring their margin, at least in the U.S. While in other geographies, you see a more atomized. Um, environment and more atomized uh, ecosystem where you have much more independence that need to compete with these big chains and those guys need to have the fresh product to compete and gain the food traffic so it's sometimes it's much much easier to penetrate the brick and mortar internationally than in the u.s um, but it, I, th- I think that that's highly dependent on the industry and the product and also what we are seeing especially in the u.s is that Brick and mortar is suffering a lot. All of the big retailers, you see them every single day that they are filing from bankruptcy, they're closing doors. And instead of taking risks, they are just trying to protect the everyday smaller footprint that they have. So that's why for us e-commerce, it's, it's key. We, we really started investing in e-commerce a year and a half ago after understanding these dynamics that are very strong in the U.S. and that are will happen also in in the rest of the world in the next few years. 
So investing in e-commerce became a strategic pillar in our company. And in an year and a half, it became more than half of our revenue. So we, we really took it seriously and started investing. And of course, we, we started using Shopify after a few bad experiences. Mm-hmm. So after the Kickstarter campaign in 2012, were you just in production mode or did you already have some inventory uh, previously? Like how, how, what, was, what, state, or what stage was the business in after the Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, so the, thing, the, the first thing that happened is that we were approached by a large retailer in the U.S. called Brookstone. And basically, they made a, a huge order for the first holiday season, which was at the same time that we were shipping to our Kickstarter backers. So we shipped to our backers, we shipped to, to Brookstone, and it suddenly became one of the best-selling selling items uh, at Brookstone that holiday season. They ran out of inventory in the first three weeks. They started reordering, and basically they bought all of our capacity, I would say, for 2013. Then, of course, in 2014, they went out of business. And that's when we started seeing this trend. Mm, of retailers, of brick and mortar places having issues. Okay. Uh, so you had all this inventory that, uh, not inventory, but you had all these orders that, that were coming in prior to you, you know, having a lot of inventory at the time. So was that an issue? Like, you know, especially during the holiday season where there's so many sales so quickly, so concentrated. What was that experience like? Yeah, the, 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 good, the, the, the interesting thing is that we always set up the company for success. Like for us, the, the, the worst thing that can happen is to have the, the sales and not be able to supply. Mm-hmm. So we always had a very strong supply chain. As I mentioned, we, we moved from Argentina to New York to launch the company. So we put all the bets and also to do it in the right way. If not, we would have started the company from Argentina and everything would have been probably right, but much, much slower. So everything that we did was betting that this was going to be big. So the supply chain was ready to react to, to that, that type of demand. Mm, so yeah, tell us a little more about the supply chains. I think this is a, an area that a lot of listeners are interested in because they might have, uh, they're thinking about uh, getting their products manufactured and they're trying to set it up in a way that's scalable that you guys have been able to do. What are some? What is the supply chain like and what are some keys that you think you guys got right to be successful at a large scale so quickly? Yeah. So we originally wanted to produce in the U.S., but in in the U.S. it was very, very hard to get started because of all the credit requirements in a new company and foreigners, was they, they were, of course, impossible. Uh, so we had to end up producing in, in China, even though our product does not require a lot of labor. It's highly automated. So we could have produced in, in North America basically the, the same cost that in Asia, but we couldn't find the, the right partners. In, in Asia, everyone is more open to, to take risks and, and new clients. And that's how we found our first uh, supplier, which was in Taiwan. And we worked with them for two years. Then we were able to scale and move the factory to China. And then finally, we were able to switch to a U.S. vendor and we switched and moved our production to Mexico. But our original vision of producing in North America had to wait like three years until we could make it happen and the volumes were there and the company had a, a history that could be vetted by, by traditional suppliers in, in North America. So now we're producing in, in Mexico, which makes everything easier in the sense that we can get the goods in four days instead of 60 days from China. Uh, and basically we can 
ship the products out before we have to pay the factory. We before, even though we had terms, mm. were still paying for the goods while, when while they were in the water. You know, so supply chain for me is key, and the way that we look at it, the location is also key because it it really helps on the working capital of a small company, which is key. If you are growing very fast. And you you probably won't get great terms, so the location of the of the production facility is key. Yeah, I think this is an important topic because you basically what you're saying is that previously when you were uh, yeah suppliers on the other side of the world, it took sixty days to get the products, but maybe you had like a net thirty deal where you had to pay yeah. them before that. But now you're in a situation where you get the products first, and you don't have to pay uh, you know for many weeks, maybe even months until. Uh, you after you receive the products, talk, talk to us a little bit more about this. Like, why is this a, such an important uh, fact? Yeah, and, and this even becomes more relevant when you are talking about an e-commerce business where you can collect your the sales on, in 24 hours and you have several weeks to pay for the goods. But but in general, I think that in a consumer goods company, working capital uh, it's what makes or breaks most of the companies. And and if you are growing a lot. Working capital is an issue, and if you are not growing a, a lot, the, the supply chain will will shut you down. So it's always hard to find that balance. You know, you, you need to show the dream to your supplier and and have the volumes for them to be engaged and give you the terms that you need. But but as soon as you are able to have that growing business, working capital is is the biggest discussion that you can have in in a consumer goods company. And the more streamlined that is your supply chain, uh, you can basically leverage the, the financing. And, you know, as I was saying, if you're selling on e-commerce and you're getting your goods four days after they, they have been produced and you're selling them the next day, um, it's, it's a great business model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing that you mentioned in the pre-interview questions was that or one thing that you said as, as a, um, I guess, advice was that you want to, stay alive as an entrepreneur. Don't run out of money. As long as you have fuel, you have the chance to try new things and ultimately figure things out. So tell us a little bit more about this. Like, uh, what, what, uh, have you been in situations before where it's come close or come down to the wire? Absolutely. Uh, a friend, an investor, uh, he said, Gaston, nothing would happen if it weren't for the last minute. And I think that <laughs> he's absolutely right. Um, yeah, yeah, we were close very many, many times. And, you can get close to, to bankruptcy or running out of cash, um, not as a sign of failure, but also of success. If you're growing extremely fast, you can also drain your resources. So um, you, can, you, you need to manage when things are not doing great, but you also need to manage when things are going great. So it's, it's a very fine balance. Um, and of course, it's easier to find that balance when things are growing, but... The real world doesn't move as fast as your business when things are working out. So that's the, the most important thing that you need to monitor and always make sure that you have enough margin and enough cash to afford mistakes because they, they will happen. Mm-hmm. What red flags do you look at today to make sure you don't run into the situation in the future where you are you know, running out of cash? So, of course, the <laughs> you need to track the, the bank account level uh, almost on a daily basis or on a weekly basis and then run different scenarios uh, and have your, your team used to, to thinking in that way. It's very important that the whole company understands the mindset and what everyone is trying to achieve. So if you have someone in your company negotiating uh, something on the marketing side, it's important that they can also ask for terms 
right? So the whole company needs to be in that mindset. And in terms of red flags, it's always running when we were uh, in the early days of the company, when we, we, we had the risk of, of running out, out of cash, of course, uh, we're running scenarios and, and cash flow projections on a weekly basis and adjusting based on that. Mm-hmm. And what, what do you think uh, newer entrepreneurs uh, are doing that might be dangerous to their cash flow? Do you, do you see a lot of new entrepreneurs investing in a certain way that might be dangerous or setting up certain deal terms that might be dangerous to to the, the, the health of their cash flow? Absolutely. I see a lot of, a lot of this happening, especially in e-commerce uh, companies. I see a lot of business uh, raising money and then just spending that money in acquiring customers at a higher a cost of their average transaction. So, and when you talk with them, they say, well, but my lifetime value of a customer makes the, the investment profitable. Mm-hmm. But I've seen so many companies just raising money and then trading that money for revenue at a loss. And I think that that's a very different, difficult game because you're just betting that the lifetime value that you have calculated will remain being what it is. And then that you will be able to keep raising money. I'm, I come from another industry. I come from the finance world and I, I'm obsessed in making each transaction uh, profitable. So if a transaction is not, not profitable, I would rather not do it and leave the, the revenue, which is fake revenue at the end of the day, on top of the table. And what it shocked me by, I don't know, in the last few years I've talked with, I don't know, close to 100 companies in the e-commerce business is that I would say that 90% of them are investing on a lifetime value, but they are losing money on each transaction. And that's why you've seen so many companies going out of business in the last few years. Mm, that, that's very interesting because that is the, uh, I guess, calculation that a lot that you'll hear a lot, which is to make sure that your cost of acquisition is lower than the lifetime value. But you're saying that that's too too dangerous, and you like to be even more conservative and make sure that the cost of acquisition for a customer uh, should be uh, less than the average order size. So basically, the first time that you get them to purchase, you should be profitable. It shouldn't require multiple purchases. Absolutely. That, that's how we grow our business. Each transaction has to be profitable. That's what my grandfather would tell me. If, I'm, if I would tell my grandfather that I'm losing money each time that I sell something, he would say, you're crazy. And that's common sense. Yeah, it's this idea that uh, you will uh, be successful just by volume alone. But if it's you're losing money on every transaction, then you'll just get more and more in the red. That makes sense. So, you mentioned earlier that when you were looking for suppliers, uh, you, like you're saying, it's not a labor-intensive product to make. It's very automated, but you weren't able to get any suppliers in in North America to commit initially. What what were the issues? Like, what were they? What were their objections when you were approaching them? Yeah, basically, the whole thing that makes the system work here, which is great, is the same thing that makes it very difficult to be inserted into that system, right? So in the beginning, I imagine I was fresh off the boat with a crazy idea, running a company with my wife out of a co-working space in, in Greenpoint, and I would talk with, to a huge factory telling them that I was going to reinvent shoelaces. Of course, it was hard. To, <laughs> it was a hard pitch, right? And um, they said, okay, uh, when, when I came out with the order, they said, okay, that's interesting. Uh, give me your credit history and your company history. I said, well, the company is six months old and I have no credit history because I just arrived here. So those things make it very hard to, to start a business in the U.S. Uh, so I had to find suppliers somewhere else until I was able to build 
all that which is required to to start a company here. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So they wanted to see a history first. So you went elsewhere that might not have required as much of a background that was more willing to invest in a smaller company. Get that relationship going. Then when you came back, they were you had a history uh, resume essentially that made them want to work with you. That makes sense. Yeah. And- yeah, the, the one thing that was shocking for me that I was willing to pay cash for, you know, the whole investment and the and the inventory and the whole thing. There there was no risk from the suppliers, but they still needed to run all these, you know, requirements, and that's what uh, got me out of the picture. So, of course, I understand, and, and that's why I chose the U.S. to build the company because uh, the market and the ecosystem it, it's very favorable, but. It takes time to be part of that ecosystem, and that, that's just how the the game is. Mm, so you felt like you had to move to the United States to to um, not necessarily earn the respect, but to earn the credibility from other uh, vendors in the U.S. Um, not not really. We moved to the U.S. because we Argentina is not an easy country. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was closer to being Venezuela that, than any other country in the world. So uh, now it's in, on a good track, but. When we decided to build a company, uh, we were poisoning it uh, if we would have started in Argentina. And we had this global opportunity, which we own through the patents and through the whole business plan that, that we built. We saw a global opportunity. And the only other language that we spoke with my wife was English beyond Spanish. So <laughs> we didn't have too many options. So, And given that I had already lived in, in New York as a banker for, for a few months, uh, I already knew how it was, and, and New York has, you know, it's this center of the world, so if, if you gain some visibility here, you gain global visibility, so it made mm-hmm. sense to take it as an adventure and, and relocate here, but it was more of about the, um, the exposure and the ecosystem in the city and the visibility that you gain by being here than, than on the vendor side. Okay, makes sense. So other than, because you've worked with so many different vendors and suppliers, uh, other than the payment terms, are there other deal terms that are important to really focus on when you're working with uh, vendors or particularly suppliers? I would say that in, in any deal, you have to be very, very careful with the exclusivities. And I, th- I think that that's important. And then if you are agreeing to, ty- to some type of exclusivity, you need to have some way out. Uh, of those contracts, so those are the, the key things that I, that I would consider before engaging. You know, when you say exclusivity, if you're working with suppliers, how, how does that how does that work? Well, yeah, a given supplier can tell can say in a contract, "Well, I'm your exclusive packaging vendor for the next five years, right?" And then any packaging that you do, you have to do it with them. And then each purchase order, it's a minimum of X amount per year. That's another thing that you have to look out for when you're talking with vendors: are the minimums that they require. And, if, and what happens if you don't reach those minimums? So everything, anything that can put you in the hook and even be prisoner of a specific vendor that then can do whatever they want to do in terms of pricing, those are all the things that you have to consider. I don't think that I'm saying something very smart here, but those are the basics. You know, It's uh, not giving exclusivity. If you give exclusivity, you, you should have a way out. If y- you, you also have to be very careful of the minimums. Payment terms are key. Those are the, the, the usual suspects. Yeah, I mean, even though these are, when you say it, you might think that they're obvious things, I think it's important for listeners to hear anyway, because especially if it's your first time working with suppliers, they're going to try to convince you that these are, you know, the normal uh, deals or these are, you know, it might not be, it might be a disav- dis- uh, disadvantage for you, but because they have so much experience negotiating and working with 
uh, retail, especially if you're a smaller company, they might kind of bully you around and, and put you in positions that, that aren't uh, great for you. Yeah, for, for the, the, the biggest thing is don't do anything that makes you uncomfortable, right? And, and then on top of that, when you are dealing with retailers, they usually want to take everything on consignment and if they cannot uh, sell it, they send it back. I usually don't accept that. So those are the things to consider. Mm, makes sense. Yeah, definitely uh, go with your gut instinct a little bit more. Uh, so you said that uh, Hickey's is now sold in 50 countries, which is you know a, a great distribution, a lot, lots all over the place. So how did you, um, you know, once you decided, you said I guess uh, North America, then Japan and Asia was really big. How do you decide which markets to enter next? Yeah. So in in our space, there were some markets that are the ones that create you know taste and opinion. So we we went to the, after those key markets. So after Japan and the U.S. being active, we expanded uh, to Europe, into Germany, the U.K., France, and Austria. And then very very quickly we expanded to Italy and Spain. So those are the biggest markets, the ones that generate um, trends. So it was very important to have a presence in those in those markets. Um, so that 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 was how we we decided. Uh, which markets to move next. It was a, a mix between size of the market and, and the impact that they have on, on the world. Mm, I, I like that. I never thought about that way before, but it makes sense that you want to enter a market that does set the trends because people are going to be looking towards those markets. If all of a sudden everyone's wearing hickeys in, in the U.S. or in Japan, it's going to become very popular in surrounding countries, other countries that look towards the U.S. or Japan for these trends. Um, so now let's talk about the uh, how to manage all of this, like the logistics and the shipping around this. I'm sure this is like going to take a whole podcast itself just to explain all this. So let's start with you know the basics though. Like how did you you set this up in a way that it was successful from the beginning to expand in so many countries? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of advantages uh, when starting a company right now. And there are a bunch of things that were not around, I don't know, a decade ago. Like today you have all these amazing softwares. I think that the, 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 the trick to scaling is to have uh, processes and technology. That's the only way that you can scale with a small team, right? Uh, so you have to make sure that you have the, the right team, that you have the right processes in place, and, and then the technology. And the technology many times in, is involved in, in the processes because the processes are designed around the technology, and also it's the, the processes are designed around the quality of the people that you hire. So I think that those three things are key. And, and going back to the original point, today you can have the best CRM system and you pay $50 per, per month with one position, and you have a better CRM system probably than Microsoft, that if they want to change their CRM system, it will take them millions of dollars and maybe three years to implement. So small companies have the advantage that they can all have the latest technology very, very cheaply. And I think that that's what we use to, to scale. You know, I, I think that Shopify is a good example of that. Uh, we are now operating Hickey's dot com in the US, in the UK, in Mexico, in Argentina, in in Germany, we are opening in Australia, Japan. And that was easier because we were able to scale it on the back of, of Shopify's uh, platform. And like that we, we did it with every single thing that you can think about the company, paying by position, getting the best software. If it doesn't work, change it, but that's the only way that you can scale. 
Mm-hmm. So when you are entering a new market and you decide that this you know, new country is a place where you want to see hickeys and next, what do you have to do to prepare for like what kind? Of, what do you have to do logistics wise to make sure that it rolls out successfully? Yeah, so now what, what, what we do, there's a mix of markets that we operate ourselves, and then we have a big part of our footprint handled by local uh, partners. So those local partners uh, are seasoned distributors that already have uh, rooted relationships with, with local uh, retailers, for example. So what now our job is, when we identify that there's a priority to open a market, is to engage with potential distributors in those in those markets and then do a very good training and onboarding process so that then they can be successful in in their local space mm-hmm. so I want to uh, change uh, topics a little change gears a little bit and talk about the marketing behind all this to be able to become a global brand you obviously have to be able to reach out to a lot of different people so I think you had mentioned that Facebook advertising has been one of the most successful strategies for you tell us a little more about this like what is the strategy behind advertising on Facebook that's been able to help you grow so quickly yeah, I would say that my, my secret weapon is is my wife. She she's a genius marketer and she's in charge of the whole communication of, of Hickey's. I'm the numbers and operations guy. Um, I think that the, the trick is basically getting a great partners that can help you um, on on the distribution of the content. First, you need to create amazing content, which I think that our team uh, is great at. And once you have that content, the most important and the most difficult is getting that content distributed. And for Hickey's, Facebook has been an amazing platform to target uh, this content to relevant audiences. And we were able to scale very, very quickly thanks to our partners that manage our budget for for Facebook. Their name is Mental. It's an Israeli-US company. And they have done an amazing job. So I think that it's, it's... all the engines need to be firing, but basically you need the content, you need the right audiences, and then you need someone that understands the dynamics of, of acquiring and retargeting to, to potential customers how to manage your, your budget. So I think that finding the right partner is the key as in everything. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the content, like what do you mean by the content? Like what, are you, what kind of content uh, are you guys creating? Yeah, so for example, we, we have a lot of traction in different verticals. We are uh, very popular among golf players. We are very popular among some uh, specific um, communities, like for example, um, yoga, um, people that go to the gym. We are also very popular among some disabilities communities where we solve a, a big problem for them. So. We create specific content for specific audiences and then we target that content to those specific audiences through Facebook. So I think that being able to deliver the right content to the right audience, which sounds simple, but it's not, um, that's, that's the real trick. Mm-hmm. So you identify these communities, identify uh, you know people with particular problems or particular hobbies, and create uh, t- content around uh, that that they would be interested in. And is this content that's just like posted on Facebook? Like where does it actually live? Yeah, the, it's it's like Facebook advertising videos, and Instagram, and yeah, it's basically that. 
Makes sense. Okay, cool. Let's talk about uh, the team next. I know that you uh, obviously have a lot of experience uh, outsourcing a lot of things, hiring and partnering with a lot of different companies to help grow the business. Is the do you have a, a team of your own too? That people that are actually just worked uh, directly for for your business? Yes, yes. We we are uh, around twenty now in two offices, one in New York and the other one in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you, uh, I guess, um, any tips on growing a team? Like, how did you know what positions to hire for first? I would say that the, the biggest recommendation is that first you need to have revenue before you start hiring. And then uh, you have the, the business organically demands for certain uh, positions. And I think that you have to be very uh, aware of, of not what will make your life easier, but what the business is demanding from the company and they are usually not the same thing so um, that's very important that to to understand where the growth is coming from and support that growth through hiring mm-hmm. yeah 20 people is definitely one of the the uh, more larger companies that i've spoken to on this podcast uh, how do you uh, manage a team of that size like what do you make what do you do to make sure on, on a day-to-day basis make sure that everyone is on the same page I think that the most important is the quality of the team that you bring on board. Uh, you don't need to manage a team if they are great. Uh, so I think that it's very important to bring high-quality people to, to join you for the ride. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. So when you do sit down and are evaluating candidates to join the team, how do you know if someone's going to be an amazing, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, employee rather than just someone that's great at interviews? Like, how do you actually identify that there will be a great addition to the team? I usually i am terrible at that. The good one is my wife. She has a radar for that. Uh, it's it, I don't know. I think that it's a combination of seeing the, the passion. It's very important that they see the vision and they understand the, the opportunity and that they like the product. I think that that's the, the most important thing. And then on top of that, that something in, in their ex, uh, experience must uh, stand out. Uh, and, and that is not just a cookie cutter because we are not doing a cookie cutter company here. So you need to find people that like thinking uh, differently. And that's what we look for when we are hiring. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Cool. So in terms of um, the tools and applications that you use, because you mentioned before that uh, processes and technology are the, the two key ways that you've been able to scale a business to the size with a you know, relatively small team for, again, a business, a global business. Uh, what, what tools and, uh, and apps do you, do you guys rely on to help run the business? Yeah. So I, I tell you the ones that come to my mind, but I'm going to forget most of them because we use a lot. Uh, for example, I was mentioning CRM. We use Zendesk uh, for that. And, and again, something that we always look for is that it's highly uh, interconnected with all the other apps and tools that we use. And what we have seen is that nowadays you might find amazing tools, but it's very hard to make them speak to each other. So that's for, for us, that's the key when we are bringing a new system on board. So I would say that we use Zendesk, then we use also Okta to manage all the accesses and passwords in the company. Then we use, um, what else? Um, QuickBooks, the the cloud version. Um, I don't know, Uh, but it's all cloud-based. Well, as I I mentioned multiple times, Shopify. Um, Yeah, those are the, the key ones, but in any specific area of the company that you look, you see a cloud-based app mm-hmm. that we pay by position, basically. Awesome. Asana. 
Yeah. Yeah. So what are the uh, what are the plans? What are the plans? Or what kind of goals do you have for the uh, for the next year for for Hickey's? Yeah. So the, our, our idea is that now that the company is growing, is to to be more out there. Is more people learning about us. More people wearing it. I love when I see people on the streets wearing our product. Uh, and now some some companies will start. Uh, launching uh, foodware directly from the factory with our technology pre-installed. So that's going to be a, a, a big step for our company, and that's going to happen in 2017. Amazing. So thanks so much, Gaston. So hickeys.com, again, is the website, H-I-C-K-I-E-S.com. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out if they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? No, I think that that's the, the best place. Uh, that combined with all of our social media, that's that's the best way to to keep it track of what we are doing. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link all that in the show notes for anyone that wants to check that out. Again, thanks to you so much for your time, Gaston. Thank you, Felix. This was great. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.